This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everybody. My name is Alia Mesbahian, and I will be your host for today. I'm very excited to be joined by Joshua Mandrick, uh, a lawyer at Goldblatt Partners who practices in the area of labor and employment as well as class action litigation. Joshua, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, um, let's start with some questions about yourself uh, and in particular how you became interested in law and what your path uh, to your current practice is. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I started to think about law school in undergrad. Uh, my parents weren't lawyers. I didn't come from it from that sort of background. Um, and I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do at that time. I had some sense that I wanted to do progressive work. Um, I didn't want to be a corporate lawyer, um, but I didn't really know uh, where exactly I wanted to fall. I thought I might want to work in a clinic or something like that. And then the summer before law school, um, I found myself working as a researcher for a union. I'd uh, worked as a researcher in other capacities prior to that. Um, and I really had a crash course in the labor movement there and, and how it works. Mm -hmm. um, I'd spent you know, high school and, and undergrad working various retail and service sector jobs um, and obviously felt a lot of frustration at work. Uh, but I didn't really have any connection with the labor movement or any sort of outlet for, for actually channeling those struggles. Um, and so once I was given that opportunity and I really learned about how all of that works, um, I, I knew that was what I wanted to do. And so uh, I went into law school sort of pathbound on wanting to be a labor lawyer and wanting to help working people. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, unlike a lot of colleagues, I had a, a pretty solid focus uh, by the time I actually went into law school. So did you have any challenges um, in particular uh, once your path was determined? You said, I'm going to be a labor lawyer. Were there any challenges along the way that uh, you might want to uh, share with our listeners? Yeah, I, th I think that uh, like a lot of folks uh, who want to do progressive work, you know, one of the big challenges that we all face in law school uh, is uh, crippling high tuition and student debt. And I think it's an important point to talk mm -hmm. about. Um, and I went to U of T, I understand you're at Osgood, where it's you know, largely the same yeah. sort of thing. Um, and it's a, it's a real problem for folks trying to get into progressive areas of work. And I'm, I'm very fortunate um, I have a good job and I'm able to pay off my student debt, but I think it's something that's really important that we should always always talk about and, and acknowledge and, and challenge. So, uh, yeah, let's move on to uh, the topic of our discussion for today, which is class actions um, in uh, employment law. So for the sake of laying out some definitions and clarifying some terms, uh, can you give our listeners an overview of class actions and specifically what is an, um, uh, an employment class action? Yeah, for sure. So at a high level, a class action is when a bunch of individuals join their legal actions together into one lawsuit. And here in Ontario and in other provinces across Canada, there's legislation that guides that. And so there's a test for something to be heard as a class action. Um, one of the key factors is commonality. Uh, you can imagine, you know, the question of whether these claims actually can be heard in common. Um, and in the employment context, uh, that's often a, a huge part of the challenge. Um, and so an employment class action uh, is when a group of employees uh, in a class, which is a, a group of individuals, uh, come together uh, and 
uh, and their actions are, are heard together as one. Um, and there is someone that's called a representative plaintiff, and that's the person who uh, brings the action on behalf of the class. And there can be all sorts of different employment class actions. I would say uh, the most uh, successful and the most common uh, in Canada are claims that have to do with issues around uh, unpaid wages or unpaid overtime, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And related to that, of course, is you know misclassification claims, like if you're not uh, properly treated as an employee, and that leads to your mispayment. Um, and those sorts of payment, those sorts of cases, um, we've been pretty successful in having them heard as class actions, where you can deal with the issue of people's pay like that uh, commonly across the class. Uh, and, and get access to justice for all of those folks, where otherwise you might not, because you know if if a thousand people are each owed a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars each, they're not necessarily going to go out and hire a lawyer and spend all of the time and costs, um, plus the other barriers that workers face in trying to stand up to their employer. Mm -hmm. So, to my understanding, the determination of the common issues takes place within the certification process, whereby the court decides whether a class action can even be heard or not. And then it's after that process uh, that we actually argue the case and say why workers should be compensated for misclassification, for instance. And so how would you evaluate the ability of these class actions to actually bring justice for the workers? Or in other words, what is the frequency of success in employment class actions? That's a great question. It's, it's a little complicated, so I'll, I'll say a few points. The first is that with respect to class actions in the employment context, like other class actions, the overwhelming majority of them settle. Um, they typically settle after certification at some stage, and so the defendant typically vigorously fights the certification of the case as a class action, but once uh, the class action is certified, Often at some point beyond then, whether it's after discoveries or before or in the middle, um, the case typically settles. So most class actions, uh, including in the employment context, are not litigated on the merits at a common issues trial. There, there's a settlement before that time. Um, I would say that um, generally speaking, uh, the cases that are pursued, um, there has been a, a pretty good track record with success in terms of getting uh, very positive settlements, getting millions of dollars to workers, um, in some cases changing employer policies and practices, uh, both with respect to that particular employer and in the industry. That said, uh, there are of course shortcomings to it. It's not perfect. Um, one of the big challenges uh, is I said that there is some good success with the cases that are brought. But of course, um, there is workplace injustice all across uh, our economy. Um, and it's really hard to bring an employment class action against a small or medium-sized employer. Um, and so there's a whole host of, of injustices uh, that we can't necessarily pursue because it's not um, big enough to be a viable class action. Uh, and so um, for, for workers who work for large, stable employers, where they have lots of people doing the same work. Uh, a class action can be a very effective mechanism for them, but there's so many workers that are sort of caught in, in the middle and in the smaller size employers uh, where it's not really a viable option. The other point is that uh, class actions are a really important stopgap in achieving access to justice for workers, but uh, 
it's not a, a proper replacement for the government properly enforcing the law. And if the Ministry of Labor uh, did an outstanding job and stood up for workers and protected and enforced their rights at work, uh, a lot of these class actions wouldn't be needed. Um, and frankly, as a lawyer that does these cases and enjoys doing these cases, I'd, I'd be happy uh, to not have that work if the government uh, did a job at effectively enforcing workers' rights and protecting them um, so that uh, we don't have to step in with these employment class actions. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And while we're on the topic of the Ministry of Labor, can you explain to our listeners a little bit about your proposals to legislation and the amendments that you recommended for the classification of workers in the gig economy? Yeah, absolutely. So right now in Canada, like across the world, there is a fight going on for the rights and the status of uh, so-called gig workers. And it's really focused on platform-based uh, gig workers for companies like Uber and the like. Um, and this is being fought uh, in the courts um, with groups of workers uh, advancing claims um, here in Ontario, there's an employment class action around the world. There's been other claims. Uh, a lot of folks have heard about the successful claim in the UK uh, where uh, Uber drivers were found to be workers under the legislation there. Um, and there's also uh, legislative battles that are going on. And so uh, there's two competing tracks. There's the, the progressive pro-worker track uh, where we can um, provide employment status to these individuals uh, and clarify their rights at work. And then uh, there's the low road, which is being pushed by companies in the gig economy. Uh, and that is a, a push to create a sort of a third category for these workers that, uh, that carves them out of minimum wage and other protections. And so uh, we um, are working with others to try and push back and fight against this. Um, one of the things that we've done um, both uh, in, in the federal government's consultation process and now the provincial government has a consultation process uh, that's currently happening related to these same issues around gig work um, is pushing uh, for uh, clarification of the fact that these workers are employees and enforcement of their rights. Uh, and on that point, I want to be very clear. Uh, my view is that uh, these platform-based gig workers are already employees under current law. The problem is the law of employment as it stands now uh, relies on complicated multifactorial tests and uh, sophisticated employers that want uh, to misclassify their workers can structure their arrangement in a way that they have an arguable case that they're not. Um, and uh, the onus is on workers uh, to overturn that status and workers face extraordinary challenges in doing so, especially precarious workers. Um, and uh, what we have suggested is that uh, the government, uh, both federally and in Ontario, uh, legislatively codify something called the ABC test. And this is a, it's a simple, straightforward, easy to understand approach to employment status. And it puts the onus on the employer and it would, uh, it would help uh, to resolve these issues um, and protect the rights of gig workers. And so that's something that we've, uh, we've been pushing for. So do you foresee any change or is the status quo going to continue? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we have to be frank about uh, where the current uh, PC government in Ontario stands. And I have grave concerns about the process that's happening right now in Ontario. Um, it, it, there's been a very short rushed consultation uh, that has been uh, put forward. 
there are no workers and no labor representatives on the on the committee that's reviewing it. Um, there's no real bona fide consultation process. They've given an email address that you can send submissions into, um, which means you know they're not going to get the the voices of the workers that are affected uh, participating in this process. They're setting it up for failure in that regard. Um, and we also know that it comes on the wake of Uber uh, pushing uh, for its sort of third way. Proposition 22 style model uh, to take away uh, these workers' employment rights. So uh, I have very significant concerns about the approach that the government uh, will take. Um, but what I can say and what gives me optimism is that uh, there are workers and there are unions and there are uh, advocacy groups uh, fighting against this and pushing back. Uh, and pushing for the rights that these workers deserve. Um, and I fully support them in these struggles and I, I hope that they win. Absolutely, me too. So just to shift gears a little bit, as we know in the times of COVID, there have been mass terminations, for instance, in the telecommunications industry or in the aviation industry. And I wanted to know, you know, in light of these terminations, have we seen an increase in the number of class actions being brought against employers? Well, I think COVID has changed the world of work. It's, it's an understatement to say so, indeed. Um, you know, with respect to employment class actions, I think that uh, they have mostly stayed steady. Um, I think that the issues uh, around them, you know, the unpaid wages and unpaid overtime issues um, continued before uh, and, and they continue now after the pandemic. Um, so, you know, we've seen cases continue to be filed in here on, in Ontario. Uh, I don't think that the pandemic has, has created sort of a dramatic shift in, in that regard, I'd say, around, you know, um, uh, these sort of cases. And, you know, with respect to issues around, you know, mass terminations and things like that, those, those are more challenging for, for class actions. There have been some class actions that have been brought about those sorts of issues, but it is more complex. And the second point related to that is, you know, the employers that are engaging in, you know, mass terminations and, and whatnot during COVID, um, there, there may be issues with their financial viability, and those are not necessarily uh, the type of, uh, of employers that it's really viable to, to go after for, uh, for an employment class action. So it's a mm -hmm. bit, bit, bit complicated. Yeah, absolutely. To me, it's just baffling to see how like a lot of these industries get uh, bailouts from the government and then go ahead and lay off their workers anyway. Um, so I guess I, I just thought that, you know, that was a common issue among the workers that a class action may, uh, may be suitable. But as you mentioned, it is uh, very complicated. So totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and, that, and that, that just sort of raises a great point that, you know, I mean, there's a whole host of workplace injustices that workers experience, some of them in common, some of them individual, um, and, you know, some of them not, not always the best tool uh, to pursue them as a class action. And so, you know, it, it, it's a tool in the toolkit. It's not perfect. I also wanted to ask you about your life as a lawyer in litigating uh, employment class actions, in particular, can you tell our listeners about what your day-to-day -day looks like and the types of work that you do? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a, a, amongst class action lawyers, like I think that my work is a bit different from uh, some others in that I think there's a lot of folks in the class action world that do all sorts of class actions. 
um, including uh, employment class actions and others. Um, I'm a bit different in that, you know, I'm, I'm a labor uh, lawyer. I, I represent workers. Um, I come to my interest in employment class actions um, out of a real underlying interest in wanting to help working people. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's a tool in, in the toolbox for the type of cases that I, I do to, uh, to help workers. Um, so, you know, I have this whole other practice in the unionized context as a labor lawyer, but in my employment uh, class action practice, it's a real mix, you know, it's, it, it's uh, a lot of talking to working people. I think that's some of my favorite uh, part of it is, um, you know, you do a lot of work to uh, investigate and to help build um, and, and support these cases uh, to, to help when you're just sort of initially starting the claim, when you're preparing the application record, um, when you're getting evidence from the workers. Um, throughout the whole process, um, it's really, uh, one of my favorite parts of it is is actually um, being able to speak to working people, um, being able to show them that they can come together uh, and challenge their employer uh, and have success. Well, yeah, that sounds very gratifying and rewarding, especially getting out there in the community and helping workers use the law in order to bring out justice for themselves. Now, I want to shift gears again to the issue of representation. Oh, um, actually... Uh, before that, another clarification point for our listeners. Can you explain the distinction between unionized workers and non-unionized workers in terms of their ability to bring forward a class action? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you are unionized, uh, your union is your exclusive bargaining agent with respect uh, to your employment. And unions are uh, an incredible access to justice uh, mechanism. You know, they allow working people to pool their resources and come together to challenge their employers. Um, and through the grievance process, uh, unions allow uh, workers to actually stand up to their employer, to have legal representation, uh, to go to private arbitration, and, and actually, you know, fight for their pay and, and fair treatment at work. Um, the trade-off for that is that uh, because the union is your exclusive representative, uh, you can't go off and file an employment class action around uh, your wages and working conditions and the like. And so uh, when we talk about employment class actions that we do, um, it's on behalf of groups of non-unionized workers. Um, in, in, you know, we've had a number of cases where um, some people within a group of workers at an employer um, would be subject to a collective agreement and you have to carve those folks out because for those folks, um, their union is their exclusive bargaining agent uh, and, uh, and is, that's where they enforce their rights through. Um, so, uh, so you know, it's an important distinction for understanding about whether you can pursue a class action uh, or individual non-class action litigation for that matter um, or whether you need to go through a union and, uh, and enforce your rights through the grievance process. So would there be any situation in which a union member can be joined in the class action, for instance, if the uh, collective agreement doesn't cover the specific dispute that's in play, or is it just an absolute rule that as long as you're a union, there's no class actions for you? I, I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's a little complicated and there's some nuance, but I think for a, for a simple answer, you know, around, around the core issues around your employment, uh, you know, 
your wages and working conditions and the like, it's pretty pretty simple and straightforward that uh, you know you have to enforce those rights uh, through uh, through the grievance procedure, and, and that includes your minimum statutory rights too. Like you know, if you wanted to enforce um, minimum employment standards, uh, you would do throw, uh, so through the grievance procedure. Okay. Okay. Now we can go back to the issue of representation in class action lawsuits. And in particular, I wanted to ask you about the differences between class actions and a individualized lawsuit. Because when we have a case uh, between, for instance, two private individuals, it seems relatively straightforward that the client has the autonomy and tells uh, their lawyer what they want to do at a given stage. But in class actions, um, it's a bit different uh, because there are potentially many plaintiffs involved, uh, thousands, uh, for instance. And so there are also various interests involved. So I was wondering how, as a lawyer, you balance uh, all of these different viewpoints, uh, which can potentially arise in the context of employment class actions. Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Well, uh, as class counsel, you have uh, a duty to act in the best interest of the class, uh, and so too does the representative plaintiff. And, uh, you know, as class counsel, you take your instructions from the representative plaintiff, but, um, uh, you know, like I said, you have a duty to act in the best interest of the class. Uh, I've been very fortunate uh, in that the representative plaintiffs that I have worked with um, have all been individuals who are deeply committed uh, to helping uh, and advancing the interests of the class. Uh, to be frank, you know, you don't become a representative plaintiff in a class action um, for your own benefit. Um, you know, oftentimes, if you're just interested in in your money uh, yourself, uh, it would probably be a faster um, and less uh, stressful course to just do an individual case against your employer. Um, the folks that want to pursue class actions overwhelmingly are trying to change things for the better to help others. Um, and when they come to it with that framework as they do, um, you know, we don't find situations where they try and undermine the rights of others in the class. But it's always a tricky thing. And, and you know, particularly uh, in the case of settlement or distribution of money or things like that, um, you know, it's something that class counsel and, uh, and, and representative plaintiffs always have to be really careful about to try and ensure uh, the best interests of the class. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, there, there are trade-offs in some of these cases. You know, you'll have a class that has different groups of workers that have experienced things differently. Um, and what you have to do is do your very best to, to, to make something that's fair. And, you know, it's never perfect, but you do your very best to approximate um, a, a fair and, and just outcome. Yeah. And just as a default rule, if there is a default rule in terms of uh, allocating the settlement, uh, would it be equally dis uh, distributed among class members uh, or would the representative plaintiff uh, be entitled to more? Because um, if I understand it correctly, uh, other class members don't have to pay for the legal fees. It's only the representative that bears the burden and risk of loss. Yeah. So a few points there. The first is um, the plaintiff won't get more as part of the distribution in a class action. Like, you know, uh, you, won't, you, you won't find a distribution protocol that says everybody in the class make, gets X amount of dollars, but the plaintiff gets Y amount of dollars. But what you will find is uh, separate from the, from the distribution uh, protocol 
uh, is you will often find honorariums paid to representative plaintiffs. Um, and unfortunately, the law is becoming more restrictive around these and, and um, uh, scrutinizing them more closely. And it's becoming uh, challenging in some cases to get the honorarium to the plaintiff. Um, uh, my view is that if you put your name forward as a rent representative plaintiff in a class action uh, to help others, and if you get a successful outcome in the end, uh, which means a settlement that's approved by the court, um, that you should be entitled to, to an honorarium. Um, yeah. You're putting your name, uh, your reputation, your time out there on the line. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a modest honorarium in exchange for that, I think, um, is, is the least that these folks deserve. Um, on that point, I guess I just know quickly, um, settlements have to be approved by the court, as I just alluded to there. And so that's why I say, you know, that the court scrutinizes to make sure that the settlement is fair um, and that the legal fees are fair uh, and the honorarium to the plaintiff. And what we've seen recently uh, is some pushback from judges around uh, honorariums being paid to plaintiffs, uh, in some cases denying them. Um, in other cases, they've been reduced or um, in further other cases, um, they, they've granted them, but on the basis of uh, sort of specific challenges that plaintiffs have faced. So in one of our recent employment cases, we had evidence that our plaintiff um, had struggles in his job search because he was the face of a very prominent employment class mm -hmm. action. Uh, and then uh, he was actually let go from a, a, a job during his probationary period and uh, when he spoke to a coworker, a former coworker at that time, about what had happened, the person advised him that they had been told that uh, the company got word of his role as a plaintiff in the employment class action um, and didn't didn't sort of want someone like that there. And so in that case, there was no trouble getting his honorarium paid to him. But um, in many other cases, you know, you might not have such an obvious smoking gun, uh, and yet uh, the worker is still putting their name forward, still being the face of the case, um, still risking, you know, putting themselves on the line like that. Um, the last point I just on, the, on that I just flag is that um, the fees in class actions and sometimes can be paid. Um, on you know sort of an hourly basis by whoever retains you, but overwhelmingly uh, the fees are paid uh, as a contingency fee approach because uh, a representative plaintiff, whether they're a worker or a consumer or a pensioner or whatnot, um, they probably wouldn't have the money to pay a lawyer themselves, and it wouldn't be worth them worth it for them to do so. So the the dominant approach in class actions uh, is a contingency fee approach where the lawyers get paid from. Uh, either a successful judgment or a, or a settlement um, as a percentage. Oh, thank you. You preemptively answered a couple of my questions regarding fees. So with that in mind, um, I want to move to the issue of access to justice. We uh, talked about it a little bit, uh, but I wanted to ask you that as a lawyer, how would you identify whether a class action lawsuit is a suitable way to bring a claim? So do clients typically make it clear that we want to bring this claim together or can and do or even should lawyers also look to increase the number of plaintiffs uh, to bring about a stronger claim? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's a mix. I think, um, you know, I've had cases where uh, an individual has come to me and they've seen articles about our other employment class actions or our other, you know, non-employment class actions and they've, you know, wanted to, to do that. Um, I've had other cases as well where that hasn't been the case, where, you know, um, as counsel, you're more involved in actually, um, 
you know, crafting and, and building the case. Um, and it's a mix, and there's sort of everything in between. I think uh, class action lawyers, um, you know, there's this sort of pejorative connotation around them. You know, people call them sort of ambulance chasers. Um, uh, you know, I don't think that's fair. Uh, I don't think that sort of uh, characterization is fair for, you know, personal injury lawyers as well when they, you know, I mean, these yes. are, you know, this is, uh, you know, access to justice. Um, you are, um, you know, fighting, fighting for access to justice for groups of folks. Um, and I think it's important work. I'm proud to be able to do part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see anything wrong uh, with a lawyer using their experience and their skills and their knowledge um, to identify something as a class action. Um, you know, typically workers understand that there's an injustice or other groups of people understand that there's an injustice uh, and they want to change it and they want to make it better. Um, and so, you know, if you as a lawyer, you know, explain to them that, um, you know, one of the things we could do here is a class action where, you know, you could uh, do this not only for yourself but for a group of folks, you know, I, I, I see nothing wrong with that and I think it's, it's important, you know, we use our tools as lawyers to actually help people and, and advance, uh, you know, advance these sorts of interests. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, especially if you're finding a better way to get justice for a lot of more people, then it wouldn't make sense to characterize uh, class action lawyers or personal injury lawyers uh, as ambulance chasers or other uh, derogatory terms. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about how long class action lawsuits take and whether there is a trade-off in a class action lawsuit because they potentially take much longer than an individualized one. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, a great point and you're right. Um, and so the timeline for a class action can range tremendously. Um, you know, I have class actions that I've worked with and helped initiate at our firm um, where we've gone from filing the claim uh, to settlement approval in less than two years. That is a very fast timeline. Um, those are sort of rather unique situations where we feel we had uh, the mix of a very strong claim, um, other factors at play that led to the employer changing its policies or practices um, that sort of cap the case uh, and make it a historical claim, and then it becomes just an issue about settling for damages. That's not the typical uh, timeline. Um, and there's other cases uh, that our firm continues to do, for instance, that have been started since well before I came to the firm. Um, and, you know, there's, there's cases that can last, you know, well more than 10 years, like, like uh, you know, there are some that we're involved with that are like that. So if you're speaking just about employment, for instance, if you are an individual uh, lower wage worker, um, it might be faster for you. Uh, to file an individual employment standards complaint alone uh, and not advance the rights of others. Um, but there are, of course, lots of trade-offs and lots of considerations. Um, there's some problems with, you know, the employment standards process and not being able to have a lawyer in that and whatnot, but not, not focusing on any of those issues, focusing just on um, you know, the, the issue of wanting to change things more broadly. Um, the ministry often does not engage uh, in proactive and expanded investigations. Overwhelmingly, it doesn't. Um, and so what that means is you might have uh, a worker file a complaint about an employment issue that just cries out uh, as being a common issue and something that's probably based on a, a policy that the company applies to everyone. Uh, and yet the Ministry of Labor uh, may well do nothing beyond that individual worker's claim. And so as I, as I said, 
um, you know, the folks that, uh, that we uh, work with, our representative plaintiffs in our cases, are overwhelmingly um, people who are committed to helping others and making things better in the future. I'd say, um, you know, they want uh, money and they want justice for themselves and others, but in my experience, um, trying to get some sort of change for the future in a sense that they really want to improve things um, is just a huge part of what animates them. And, and you know, for folks like that that are committed to, to helping people like that, um, it makes the choice fairly mm -hmm. easy. Absolutely. And there seems to be a social dynamic to it as well uh, in the sense that uh, we have committed plaintiffs who also want to organize for change in the future. So can you speak to that a little bit and in particular uh, also about the possibility of uh, sparking legislative change uh, with a class action. Yeah, absolutely. So um, first is, is, you know, like all cases, there's always a broader social context uh, to class actions. Um, I would say that um, with our cases, you know, much of it is played out uh, in the court of public opinion and the plaintiff um, typically uh, launches the case publicly um, to, to uh, garner attention to the case and to the issue. Um, in addition to that, you know, we've had a number of our cases where at the same time as we've had our class action, there have been other um, issues playing simultaneously. So, um, you know, when we had our class action against Good Life Fitness, there was a simultaneous and uh, not connected, um, but addressing similar issues, uh, organizing effort from a, from a union. Um, and uh, both of these things were sort of going along the same track in the sense that they were concerned about um, uh, improving the lot uh, for the workers, um, but they were not necessarily directly connected. Um, in terms of legislation, I think that uh, there's a few points. I mean, I, I think that, first of all, um, in so many of these cases, the problem isn't that these workers don't have their rights on the book and that the legislation doesn't protect them. The problem is that our system of enforcement is so poor that it allows uh, it allows um, enforcement to go without, essentially, um, and so workers don't necessarily have the rights that they have uh, on the books um, in practice. Um, and so uh, often it is our view that you know they already have, for instance, the minimum wage and the overtime protections, and you know these workers are already employees at law under the ESA. But, um, you know, we've been pushing um, publicly around this, this change uh, to codify the ABC test because I think what that would do um, is do away with the need for a lot of this complicated litigation around uh, status. Uh, and if you could try and clarify worker status uh, at the outset, um, that would really, uh, really help things and would really help workers and um, could avoid a lot of this litigation, to be frank, um, yeah. if, uh, if you just had uh, strong public enforcement and clarification at the outset, um, it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't need lawyers to get involved and, and need to have, you know, years-long litigation to fight around basic rights. So we are near the end of the episode, and before I let you go, I wanted to ask if you have any advice for current students who want to practice in the areas of class action, employment and labor law, and want to pursue litigation as well? Yeah, well, with respect to class actions, there, uh, you know, there's, there's increasingly courses around class actions in school, and I do think that it's important to take those if you can. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's a unique area 
Um, it's a unique world to learn, and you might find it helpful in a whole bunch of other areas of your practices as well. Um, and so I would suggest you know, trying to go out um, and actually learn about it, take some of those classes. Um, in terms of other advice for students, um, you know, I, I would say try and stay focused on the things that you want to do, um, particularly if you're trying to work in social justice. Just about everything in law school will try and push you to the other direction, whether it's your school's career development office or whether it's um, your significant tuition and student debt. Uh, and I think it's really important to, uh, to stay committed and focused to what you actually want to do. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, you often have to swim upstream in that regard and sort of push back against um, the, the current that, uh, that school tries to push you towards, you know, towards, you know, working in, uh, you know, uh, business litigation and, and the like. Oh, yeah. Going into my second year and into the OCI process, I can totally feel uh, the pressure is getting uh, more and more vivid. And with that, we have reached the conclusion of the episode. Joshua, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight and experiences with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.